0: I, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, starting a new episode tonight, Dutch or Dutch-style colonial homes in America. Introduction. There are several hundred, perhaps over a thousand Dutch colonial houses surviving today. They were erected in the beginning of the mid-17th century, up until the outbreak of the revolution in 1776. A survey of surviving Dutch colonial houses conducted by Helen Wilkinson Reynolds in the late 1920s clearly demonstrated these regional and time-specific attributes, which reflected adaptations over the years to the evolving needs and perceptions of the occupants, as well as changes in fashion and available technology. The Dutch had experience farming rich bottomlands. More more in the Netherlands was reclaimed by the sea. By choice, therefore, most Dutch settlers built homes in riparian lowlands within yards of navigable water. They herded cattle and sheep on coastal saltgrass meadows or on the necks and islands of rivers. By occupying the Raritan lowlands, the Dutch engineered the envoy of their Yankee neighbor's struck with the hard scrabble rocky heights throughout much of New England, eventually the rich bottomlands of the Hudson Valley attracted Yankee immigrants. Competition and eventual annexation of the Dutch settlements by the English. The river pattern of the settlement expedited the traffic in people and cargo at a time when overland transport of bulk goods was physically daunting. Dozens of sloops piled the Hudson River and the adjacent coastal waters. Many Dutch traders ventured as far as the Caribbean with wheat and other produce of Dutch farms in the Hudson Valley. On return trips upriver they supplied farmers and merchants with finished products imported from from overseas or made in New York or other coastal cities. The main material imported for house building was glass, which was very expensive. Early houses usually had only a few small glazed windows. Almost every other building material was made or obtained locally. Timber for joists and boards was felled and hewn locally, often adjacent to the building site and preassembled by house rights within yards of where the house was to be raised. Bricks. In some areas, pantels for roofing were burnt locally with the clay that was common throughout much of the Hudson Valley. Where stone, especially stratified limestone and sandstone, was available, it became the preferred building material as was cheaper and required fewer masonry skills than brick and was more durable and stylish with wood than wooden clapboards. As in all colonial architecture, site specific timber, stone, and clay were primarily selected on the basis of economic factors. In contemporary times, the aesthetic importance of employing local materials was recognized as an important consideration in unifying a structure and its location. If we look at each region, the relationship between local building materials and styles becomes more obvious. The houses are distinctive in design by the date of construction and often regionally specific within a wide territory claimed by the Dutch, an area that encompassed the Delaware to the Connecticut River valleys and Staten Island up to the Hudson River to the Mohawk River Valley. With the passage of time, regional variations in houses developed along the Dutch homesteaders, reflecting the local diversity of readily available resources. In the near absence of stratified rock or clay, Dutch colonial houses on Long Island were usually built of wood. Stylistically, this lent itself to creating ever-hanging Flemish-style spring eaves. In New Jersey, houses were frequently built with squared local brownstone and wide, low-pitched, bell-shaped gambrel roofs. Although stone was rarely used in the Netherlands, it became the traditional building material in several sections of the Hudson Valley at a very early date. Ulster County houses were almost all made of limestone with pitched roofs, whereas across the Hudson River in Duchess's County, fieldstone houses were frequently built with brick gables and gambrel roofs. In the north, in Rana and Fort Orange, which has later became Alt- Albany County under the English, today it encompasses several counties. The brick house was popular among the more prosperous farmers. Using a traditional Netherlands material also resulted in copying more closely the traditional Netherlands style. Houses were built with spout gables and steep pitched roofs, a few still actually surviving from Kinderhook to Schenectady. By the late 1760s, Brick houses with high breaking gambrel roofs were built in the area as the English taste came to predominate. Their earliest homes usually had one room and, <clears throat> and one and a half floors in height, by contrast. The early English colonial houses often had rooms with, on two floors. Rooms joined with the gables, sometimes with separate outside entry into each room. The buildings, one room deep end, with the exception of a few side aisle buildings, especially had no hall or passageway connecting the various chambers. The ground floor of a Dutch home was dedicated to residential uses. The upper half story was primarily used for storage of grain and or other items, as a place to weave or as a sleeping area for older children, hired hands or slaves. A fundamental difference exists in the construction and function of Dutch and English chimney and fireplace design. The Dutch fireplace design, common in Dutch homes until the mid-18th century, consisted of a hearth supported by an arched masonry base at the cellar. It looks somewhat like a flueless fireplace or by a cradle of wooden members combining rocks and masonry directly beneath the hearth stones. The fireplace had a masonry rear Wall, but opened into the room without jams or walls on all the sides. The chimney rested on a beam above the hearth of a Dutch fireplace, and a wide brick flue led to a smoke chamber in the, the garnet, garret I'm sorry. before ex- 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 exiting via a lighted brickwork chimney. The early English designs called for a massive central masonry base, supporting several flues and hearths, The chimney also functioned as a central support for the frame beams of the house, such as a summer beam. Early Dutch rooms were usually plastered. The wooden structural frame members and the wooden plank ceilings were left exposed. Anglo-American rooms were frequently paneled with boards or planks, and at an early date, the ceiling beams were concealed and plastered over. In the mid-18th century, English fashions prevailed and Dutch Anglo rooms were often fitted and paneled with the ceiling beams and planking, which were covered with lath and then plastered. Within Dutch houses, there was a number of culturally specific Netherlander features. The principal cultural markers include Dutch jamless hearths, commonly built until the mid 18th century, and in the conservative upper Hudson Valley, They were replaced at that time by more efficient English-style fireplaces. Elsewhere, they were converted earlier. If it was affordable, many Dutch homeowners also elected to decorate their hearse with Delft tiles, and that (coughs) had the illustrations drawn from nature, folk culture, and or the Bible. In addition, there were enclosed stairways to grain storage garrets, and gable doors with hoist mechanisms to lift heavy articles to the garret lofts. The divided doors with flanking benches, commonly called a Dutch door, was built at the entry front steps. Still called stoops in New York, though. These were important and ubiquitous features found on the colonial homes of the Anglo-Dutch people. Houses were filled with typically Dutch furnishings that included large storage cabinets called kasten Cast or kas singular, for linen or valuables. Other pieces were the pot blanks or open dish shelving that once graced kitchens, as well as the distinctive fiddleback chairs, gate tables, and various Delft articles, both utilitarian and decorative. Dutch colonial architecture is based upon a Netherlands concept and dates back to the Middle Ages. The one fundamental and distinctive feature that by itself identifies a house as truly Dutch is the anchor bent or H-bent frame, an anchor bent or H-bent frame that looks like a football goalpost. It is is an H-shaped unit consisting of two vertical squared members or posts joined by a squared horizontal member or beam set and joined several feet below the top of the post. Each H-bent is a distinct framing unit and anchors the structure of the house. In early houses, the anchor-bent beam was buttressed by angled braces called corbels, seated into the post below the joint. Anchor-bent construction absolutely separates a Dutch house from the typical Anglo-American box frame houses of New England and the southern colonies. While the English box frame consists of two preassembled Eve wall sub assemblies that were raised and connected to tie beams, the Dutch builder raised a series of individual H units, and that then they were joined on the Eve walls, at the base by the sills and at the top of the biplates. The roof structure consisted of a series of rafters joined in pairs at their apex. The rafter pairs were connected a few feet below their apex by a wind brace. The roof did not require a unifying roof tree beam connecting the pairs of rafters to each other, but frequently planked over before being shingled. Dutch barns were framed in the same H-bent system, only the timber members of larger in scale. Barns (coughs) Barns were three aisles wide, while houses were most often one aisle wide, an aisle being defined as the space between the anchor bed post for a house and the space between the post of an aisle on the outside of each set of the post in a barn. Dutch barns were primarily used for storing grain, so the loft and center aisle were dedicated to thrashing and storage. The two side aisles sheltered livestock. In both Dutch houses and barns, all structural elements were visible and essential parts of the aesthetic of the house. In the houses, structural members of the H-bent were plain smooth and the anchor-bent beams frequently finished with a decorative beveled edge. The anchor-bent beams were planked over to serve as the attic floor above, while just below they were exposed to serve as a ceiling of the floor below. The room functioned as the cellar ceiling. Both garret floor and cellar ceiling surfaces were less carefully finished. Then exposed surfaces within the main floor of the garret and or cellar were used for living spaces. With the English Georgian fashion for plaster ceilings became the vogue, the beams were covered. These beams may therefore be smooth, but rough beams were never intended to be exposed. Most Dutch colonial houses use low-grade areas for storage. And as, a, and, and as root cellars, however, cellars s- frequently served as a kitchen area. Below grade level, kitchens are more commonly found when a house was built on a slope and the cellar opened at ground level at the back. In houses made with stone walls and posts, the H-bent were omitted. The beams were seated in niches in the left of the masonry, the stone walls acting as bearing walls of sufficient strength to support the beams. Massive wooden frames were employed for doors and windows, but directly into the stonework. In all other respects, stone houses followed the basic pattern of Dutch construction, square rooms, open fireplaces, finished beams, and flooring. Traditional Dutch brick houses, although of masonry, do not have strong bearing walls like the stone houses. Brick houses have anchor bent frames identical to wooden houses. The external layer of bricks is merely a non-supportive envelope that provides fire resistance, elegance and insulation, but is identical in function to clabbered technology. The more modest and less expensive clabbered houses walls were insulated by filling them with baked and unbaked brick on on a lath or or in mud filling early anglo-american buildings often had a woven mesh of of wattle and loose clay called daub in the in the wall infilling material which is not typical of early dutch construction interior walls were plastered with whitewash In the early period, the smoothly finished Dutch anchor-bent member ceilings and floors were kept unpainted, and they became smoother by periodic washings. Dutch floors were laid and spiked rather than pegged. The unfinished surface frequently scoured and strewn with clean sand. Only in the late 18th century did paint on beams become generally accepted. However, the houses were brightened with the color from the beginning. Frames of windows and doors Fireplace mantle and pilasters, and the wall post, if not corbels, beams, and flooring were painted in the early colonial period. These painted elements stood out dramatically against the normally white lime-washed walls. The Dutch have traditionally exhibited their affection for strong colors, and in the colonies they displayed their taste for this connection. Paints were made from ground pigments derived from natural sources such as minerals. These were mixed with linseed oil or milk and applied directly to the bare unprimed wood. The most common colors were red, close to Venetian red, red red-brown, Spanish brown, or blue-gray made from charcoal, and a vermilion, which was made from a mineral of lead, uh, (coughs) red lead. White, yellow, and okra Yellow and green are among the more common colors. The colors were used monochromatically or especially on doors and shutters in combinations. With few exceptions, colonial homes have been modified, have been modified, modernized, and defaced in in the name of progress. Dutch jamless fireplaces were converted to English-style fireplaces by the middle of the 18th century. Early homes with leaded windows that had lead iron braces in distinctive Dutch-style frames were changed to sash windows in the middle of the 18th century. Dormers, rare in original Dutch construction, were added. The first floor gable windows were added, and, and panel walls went out of fashion in the 19th century. Even roof lines were changed from pitch roofs to gambrels, when some houses were deepened at the garret and divided into rooms. Then, when some houses were raised to two full stories, gambrel roofs were changed back to single pitched roofs. Houses also expanded outward. As family size and wealth increased, the homesteaders' single-room dwellings were expanded to become a series of rooms jointed laterally at the gables. Houses originally fitted with separate separate doors to the exterior of each room were revised to become center-hall dwellings, and early homes built one room deep were doubled in depth by the addition of a second row of rooms at the rear. Wings, L's, sheds, and entirely new houses were built onto around or over older buildings. The original house might end up as a kitchen at the rear or either that or be torn down and lost entirely except for the foundation. As a result of these, often, undocumented changes change deeds titles date stones and traditions are garbled confused and sometimes purposely misrepresented an old house requires detective work that is a challenge and therefore a joy or the frustration depending on successful reading of the evidence clues to the past are seldom entirely erased and many mysteries may be unraveled with logic experience and an eye for details. A single extra, extra deep anchor beam provides a clue to the location of the long-gone jamless fireplace. A single corbel left in an otherwise later style room indicates structural modernization at some time and in the past, and stairways and upper floor rooms indicate modernization and expansion to an earlier structure. Cellar walls and beams and fireplace foundations reveal evolutionary developments from the ground up. Frequently, an old window or doorway will be discovered hidden within or under or between later construction. Finished beams above a plaster ceiling indicate early exposure, and walls and wooden members of different thicknesses or varying types of lath in adjacent walls are indicators of different periods of development. Jeffrey Gross Photographs of a wide selection of authentic Dutch houses throughout uh, America today serves as an important document providing clarification for an often confusing and misrepresentative genre. Many of the rooms photographed um, over the years reflect changes to to accommodate modern life. Houses were lived in differently in the past. Before the 18th century, few rooms were dedicated to specific functions beyond what we Conceive as a kitchen or a parlor, dining rooms, bedrooms, and living rooms are all post-Dutch colonial features, unknown to the original builders. Homesteads once humble are now grand. The Dutch farmer might have been in his his great glory when his cult, when his curtains in bed, while the child might sleep in a trundle under if when it was pulled out. From under the masters with a baby or in a cradle beside the bed in 1749 peter calm remarked that at least in albany some houses had bed partitioned off as was a common practice in the netherlands sons might climb a ladder to sleep in the slate in the slaves of the garret among some wheat sacks or make do in a corner of the kitchen a family lived closely in a two-roomed house cooking, eating, working, and playing in a proximity that would amaze many Latter-day occupants. The, the, the ph- photography by Jeffrey Gross uh, has inspired many of the Dutch colonial architecture and culture. These images create a palpable sense of what it was like to live in these houses in the time that they were built. And that's going to finish up tonight uh, for our series on Dutch style in houses in colonial America. Thanks for listening.